There hasn't been a version since March 11th, 2017, but today, well, a couple of days ago, Windowmaker 0.95.9 was released. And you remember Next, the Debt Next desktop? Yeah, I mean, from ages ago, before Apple got good. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you were just shopping Next boxes, weren't you? Yeah, so I was, uh, after reading the new update for Windowmaker, which, when are they going to hit 1.0? That's going to be an amazing release. But uh, I was looking at old Next machines and 800 bucks on eBay for a full Next station right now. Did you catch the age or the vintage of that machine? 1991 was the release date of that machine. 25 megahertz, Motorola 80, uh, I forgot the exact CPU, but yeah, 25 megahertz. 25 megahertz. Originally sold for $5,000. That's a steal of a deal, man. I think you got to get it. I wonder if you could run Linux on that thing. Hello, friends, and welcome into your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hey there, Wes. Hello. We have a really fun episode today. We're hanging out with some killers, some memory killers. Ah! So you've probably heard the term out of memory manager, and you've probably also heard that Linux isn't always that great in a low memory situation. And you might wonder why, because one of the very first things I learned about Linux is that kernel will start to kill processes to survive. And I thought that was so cool. But it seems like it's used so sparingly. And if you're on the desktop and you run out of memory, you get like in like a 10% memory zone, you'll notice that your desktop just starts to thrash and sometimes never really fully recovers until you reboot. Yeah, I've uh, certainly been there, right? You, you see the mouse move every once in a while, but ultimately you just have to hold the power button down. And you're thinking, I'm sitting here on a supercomputer grade operating system and this is happening. What the heck? Well... One of the first projects to try to solve this will be Fedora. On the desktop, at least, there's lots of solutions, but Fedora is one of the first distros to ship something enabled by default. It's called Early Out-of-Memory Manager, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. And we've set up two boxes, a Fedora 31 box and a Fedora 32 preview box. We're going to slam them into low memory conditions, absolutely punish them, and we'll show you how Fedora 32 handles that situation a lot better than 31 does. It's kind of exciting. You like this? This is real-world improvement. And the nice part is it's all enabled by default in 32, so yeah. you don't have to do anything. Nope. And so I loaded up a 31 machine over here. Wes has a 32 machine over there. We've come up with the same way to stress them at the same time. And then it'll just be a versus, and we'll see how 32 and 31 compare. I know which one I'd rather have. That'll be in a little bit. We'll also have some community news and some housekeeping. But before we get to any of that, I'm going to say hello to Alex and Cheesy. How are you guys doing? Hello, internet friends. How are you? Hello, hello. I forgot my water, Wes. Wes, I forgot. <gasps> Wes, will you, will you do me a favor? <laughs> yeah. Grab my water. Thank you. And while you do that, I will say time-appropriate greetings, virtual lug. Hello, Mumble Room. Hello, hello. Linux Tuesday. <laughs> got it in there. We got 21 people on air today and 35 people uh, total with some up in the quiet listening. Thank you, Wes. I got to drink the water during the show or else my mouth sounds really annoying. And then people have to listen to me smacking my lips. And Joe will complain. There's that too. All right. Well, before we get to abusing our Fedora installs, let's cover some community news. Besides Windowmaker, there are other things happening. Microsoft has announced essentially its own version of SE Linux. You're probably familiar with the LSM, the Linux security module. You have things like AppArmor, 
SE Linux in. And there's others, actually, I wasn't really aware of. But like everything in Linux... Once you make it a module, people are going to write modules. And there's multiple versions of something. So Microsoft's is named the Integrity Policy Enforcement, or IPE for short, as they like to say. And it is indeed a full-fledged LSM, which is an optional add-on for Linux kernels. It's not necessarily mandatory if you want these security features. According to the docs just released on Monday, IPE is Microsoft's attempt to solve the code integrity problem for Linux. Mostly because they deploy a whole bunch of Linux on Azure, they want to make sure it's secure. (laughs) Go figure. So on Linux systems where IPE is enabled, system administrators can create a list of binaries that are allowed to execute. And then they can add verification attributes to the kernel that can check each binary before allowing it to run. So little things it needs to make sure of per binary. And if the binary has been altered by an attacker, well, then IPE can just block the execution of that malicious code altogether. If that sounds like a lot of hoops to jump through, well, Microsoft says IPE is not intended for general purpose computing. The IPE LSM, say that twice, was designed for a very specific use case where security is paramount. And administrators need to be in full control of what runs on their systems. And that's where you want to start, you know, monitoring every single executable that runs. Examples of this include things like embedded systems, maybe like your network firewall running in Azure, or Linux servers running strict and immutable configurations where you need to verify and make sure really that nothing changes once you've deployed it. I have pretty good faith that Microsoft could pull something like this off overall. And like SE Linux, they have a permissive mode and an enforce mode. So you could put it in permissive, log what breaks, and then try to fix that before you turn it on. I'm curious to what your just your off-the-top reaction is to Microsoft creating essentially an SE Linux alternative. Yeah, it's interesting to see them working at scale like this. I mean, they have a lot of experience with enterprises and also working with governments where you have you know a lot of strict controls that you have to meet. Clearly, none of the other systems allowed them to really target exactly the the certain use cases and scenarios that they had. So it's kind of great to see them contributing this back up in a way that, you know, surely other systems are going to be able to use. Right. I'm going to go with that. I think I really don't know what to make of it. Uh, I hate the not invented here stuff, but at the same time, I have faith that Microsoft is probably pretty familiar with their deployment scenarios and deemed this necessary. And they're not going to just go off and create something that's not necessary. And, I mean, we already had multiple versions, right, of AppArmor and SE Linux. So True. You weren't really going to get your one true tool anyway. I took a uh, kind of a quick look at what IPE is designed around. Um, It seems to be very much oriented around... Your system essentially has to be immutable. It has to be paired with something like DM Verity. Um, it it has a lot of specific things that are very useful for embedded devices and things like that. But I also think that this is likely going to be structured as what's known as a minor LSM that can be stacked on top of a so-called major LSM, like SE Linux, for example, is a major LSM. So there's in the in the LSM framework there are limited stacking capabilities. Um, I know that Canonical has been pushing very hard for making what are so-called major LSMs to stack, like AppArmor and SE Linux stacking on each other. Aside of the complexity disaster that I personally think that will cause, and I also don't think anyone is going to reasonably be okay with such a configuration ever existing in production because it would make it 
a total nightmare to debug and analyze. Um, minor LSM stacking on top of major LSMs um, is actually quite common, like Yama on top of SE Linux and, or Smack or AppArmor and things like that. So I think we will see that things that need to exist within the LSM framework that support very specific use cases, um, if they aren't considered quote-unquote major and are considered complementary to the to the major LSMs, which at this point are SE Linux, AppArmor, and Smack, we'll probably see this like uh, be used actually in more than just the embedded space. It seems like a pretty streamlined, minimal approach right now as well. So you could see adoption there. Um, I want to just bring up another story that is probably somewhat applicable to our audience. This isn't getting a lot of coverage. It's getting covered in a couple of places, but OpenWRT has a pretty important security advisory. Essentially, the short version is, there was a flaw that caused the package manager to ignore the SHA-256 checksums embedded in the signed repository index. Uh, in other words, effectively bypassing integrity checking of the downloaded .ipk artifacts. Not good. Obviously, very easy for an attacker to exploit that if they could uh, just put up a bogus package. So, worth an update. Now, I wanted to bring it up here because I'm curious if the Mumble Room or Cheese or Alex or yourself, Wes, if you guys are still using OpenWRT, if you're using something else, if, is OpenWRT still... Uh, the project to go with for these kind of jobs. Uh, I'm, somebody want to educate me because just kind of re-looking at my setup at home, and I would love to have a Linux operating system that I could put on a piece of hardware. So I'd love to not have to run a full-fledged machine if I can avoid it. And I'd just like to have a dynamic DNS server. I'd like to have a little firewall capability. I'd love to have a WireGuard, you know, uh, VPN UI. Is OpenWRT the way to go? The juggernaut in this space is pfSense. And uh, I think most people will kind of make that trade-off that, okay, it's not Linux, it's BSD instead uh, based on. But it's been the go-to for people looking to solve that and scratch that itch that you've just mentioned. You know, you, you want something that's open source, is free, is really flexible, has all the power of the enterprise, can do multiple WANs, it can do dynamic DNS, now, PFSense can't yet do WireGuard, which actually about two months ago led me to switch to something called OpenSense. Um, there was a whole bunch of licensing drama, which Wes and Jim covered in you know great detail on TechSnap around PFSense, which led OpenSense to come into existence. And I've actually found it to be quite a nice little upgrade. I think we'll talk more about that on Self-Hosted too, because I will try that one. There are, you know, various similar sort of solutions based on Linux, like IP Fire is one that comes to mind. But I just roll it myself on Linux. I know you know how to run DNS masks, so you can get a lot of that stuff if you're willing to set up the config files yourself. So legitimately have been considering that. It's less work than you think. I know a lot of people that just have a bunch of random IP tables rules on their Linux box, and they say, yep, yeah, that's good enough to be my firewall. Personally, I don't object to having a firewall with a UI so I can see what is easily available and what isn't available. Um, but Brent and I actually recorded an extras not long ago talking about his setup and how you separate Wi-Fi from the firewall and all that kind of stuff. And he's still running, I think, Tomato right, as a version right. of DDWRT on some like 10-year-old <laughs> embedded thing. <laughs> so something that Alex and I want to focus on for a couple episodes in Self-Hosted starting with next week's episode, is some of the basics of fundamental good networking, fundamentally getting good, strong Wi-Fi throughout your entire place, that kind of stuff. So check out Self-Hosted for that. Now, Colonel, you're a 
a daily driver, if you'll allow it, of uh, OpenWRT? Yeah, so I run uh, the OpenWRT for friends and family because trying to slot in an actual real like router or something like a PFSense scares the dickens out of them. They want that little you know consumer grade you know all in one unit. And so for them, I put that on there because it's more secure and easier to manage than half a dozen different types of web UIs and all this other. And it they just like it better. You know, one of the things that I think you have to consider is that a lot of these smaller devices and less power hungry devices are going to be running an embedded uh, OpenWRT, DDWRT, Tomato, or, or you know, various different um projects out there. In fact, the GLINet slate that you have uh, runs OpenWRT and, as you know, has WireGuard built in. Um, the GLINet, I think it's the MT300 that I have, it's the, the baby brother to yours, um, also runs OpenWRT. And a lot of the uh, Netgear Nighthawk routers support uh open wrt straight oh, out of really? the box so i didn't know that the, it's i think it's one of those things it depends on the level of security i mean the way that i've always felt about it is that if you really want a all the configurations everything at your fingertips then go with pfsense if you want something that's a little more consumer uh grade nicer generally than your manufacturer's ui then go with something like uh open WRT and, and you get a slew of packages. There's a ton of stuff available there. I mean, if you wanted to set up an IRC server on your router, you could. Well, like you said, I have it on the slate and I really just think it's the perfect spot for open WRT because it, they have provided a bit of a skinned average user GUI that, that just shows you if you're on a MiFi connection, if you're on a Wi-Fi, if you're repeating land, like it, cause it's kind of designed as a travel router that you'd take with you to a hotel or something. Right. And so it has a really nice GUI that just gives you that status and where you can program what the button on the side of the case does. And you can give it all these kinds of functions like initiate and close a WireGuard VPN by just clicking a button on the side of the case. You can assign it to a function, which is neat. Mm, Very nice. Then they have the advanced UI where you can actually manage interfaces and see data about what's being transferred. And then on top of that, you can also terminal into it. They have a, a web UI or you can just turn on SSH. And then, yeah, you're essentially on a Linux system. It does feel limited. It does feel like I would like something a little more advanced. But at the same time, I was concerned I would not be able to use the Slate as like a full-time quote-unquote router. But it has been totally fine. And OpenWRT works great on there. But it's a very unmanaged version of it. It's not something I'm maintaining, really, other than just doing OEM updates. So is that something that you use primarily for Lady Jupe's connections when you're on the road or like? All the time. No, because it's it's always, it picks and chooses between the best. Uh, sometimes right. I have to coax it. It could be a little better at that. But at uh, my home base, I have an Ethernet connection. And then when I'm on the road, I'm either on MiFi or some Wi-Fi somewhere. And I can pick and choose between them. But what's nice is the LAN IPs, everything behind the NAT always stays the same. Nice and simple. It's just the external connection that changes and the devices on the LAN are none the smarter. Well, I like that you can toggle features super easily. So if you wanted to say do DNS over TLS or something like that, it's literally just flick a switch in the UI and you're off and and running that. So it's great. It does make that really easy. And it was really easy to just sort of get in there and turn off the DNS stuff when I wanted to go with Pi Hole. Right. All that's very simple. One thing I want you to investigate 
this is self-hosted show research, but one thing I want you to investigate is site-to-site WireGuard VPNs from the Slate to an OpenSense instance. Uh, I used OpenVPN from PFSense to PFSense for a couple of years, and that worked really, really well. I haven't yet managed to have two OpenSense systems to do a site-to-site, so I'd be curious to get your take on that, Chris. I wonder how it would do that behind the double double grade NAT, the double enterprise grade carrier grade NAT. Maybe if I had a droplet in between that did like the go between. So I wire guard out from the RV behind the double carrier grade NAT into the DigitalOcean droplet. And then the DigitalOcean droplet connects into the other LAN that I'm bridging to. I, I don't know. There's probably a way I could do it. Some sort of network tomfoolery. We'll figure it out. We did deep dive at one time and, uh, uh, that double that double NAT really is a complicator for that kind of stuff. It's just tricky. Sometimes it works. When gosh, you're lucky. It's gosh darn tricky. Even even software that's designed to like get around double NATs still sometimes with that double carrier grade NAT still has issues. That's how you got to say it too. All right, it's time for a little housekeeping here on the old uh, unplugged podcast. Keep things fresh. Keep keep you on, informed on what's going on. You know, got got to clean yourself from time to time. For you guys, you know. First and foremost, check out the recent Brunch with Brent. Daniel Foray, the founder of Elementary OS, sits down with Brent for brunch. And it was a really great, like, Linux origin story. It's fantastic. So uh, definitely go check that out. You can find that at extras.show slash 68, is it, Wes? I'm going to say 68. Going once. Yes, got it right. (laughs) Pretty great. You know, rumor has it, there's a lot of great brunches now. You could probably just go there and click on that brunch tag and see them all. That sounds like a nice way, yeah. You know, you want to escape the world outside? Have some brunch. Just continuous brunch for several days in a row. I liked it so much I slapped my leg. I went, yeah, slapped my leg, Wes. Yeehaw! Now, you know, we do this here show live. We've got a great mumble room. uh, And we're all hanging out here, having ourselves a virtual lug. And you can be part of it. If you're like me, you're not actually making it to a lug. You know it'd probably be good for you, but you're not going. Yeah, you know, sometimes they're not near. Sometimes you got a couple options and you're still not going. Like Wes and I, we have options and we still don't go. We should go. About about twice a year, I might go to, go to one. But usually it's not one that's in my neighborhood. So it's... Uh, it's anyways... <laughs> I'm getting off. I had too many Red Bulls. Lugs can be hard. You know, you, you, when you have to, to meet say. in meat space because you got to like take the time and get there. And, and here we are. Look at this. We're hanging out with 37 other oh, Linux wow. users right now. 37 other Linux users. And the thing is, is we're all chatting in between the shows. You know, like maybe we had to take a break a couple of minutes ago because we got disconnected from a couple of people. So we're just chatting. And we, you could be part of that. It really is. It's great. It's good for the Linux soul. Uh, we do this show live, jblive.tv on Tuesdays, 2 p.m. Nope, it's been a little while, noon Pacific, but you can get that converted at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. You can also find that mumble room info if you just go Google search Jupiter Colony Mumble. Or if you get in the IRC room, you can do bang mumble. Uh, that makes it easy. I just mentioned that because we'd love to see you. Also, the conversation continues after the show at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. How are we doing on numbers there, Cheese? We, do we get, we're over 1,700 now? Yeah, we're like 1,736, <sighs> I think was the last. Nah, it's slowed. It's slowed. It's slowed a little bit, but 1,700 people. I've never asked the number. I've never cared. But then I got this stupid idea of getting up to 2,000, and now I care. It's stuck in your head. It's dumb. We will get there. You're not going to hear me stop complaining about it till it gets to <laughs> 2,000, so let's just get it over with. Please, Jupiter- for, for my sake. <laughs> 
geobitterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. Get over there and get involved. You know, you get links to stuff, you know? You can talk to Wes Payne in there probably, you know, if he's around. <laughs> sure can. You know, just make sure you add him at really weird times. <laughs> You're welcome, Wes. <laughs> all right, that's all the house. I better get out of there before I wreck somebody else's day. Don't don't add Wes at weird times. So I'm um, I'm feeling a little I'm feeling a little silly because uh, I just love this idea. Thanks to Carl who suggested it in the post post show last week, and that was just punishing the heck out of Fedora 32 and seeing how it handles it differently than a Linux system in the past. Now, uh, as you know, there is this out-of-memory manager that we've talked about, the OOM, and there's different... uh, Well, you may not know this part because I didn't know all of this until recently. There's many out-of-memory managers out there on the market, one created by Facebook, others created by other folks, ones that may be better for the desktop long-term, but easy... I'm sorry, early OOM is a very easy one to implement. So that's an easy way to remember that because early OOM is a, is a kind of a, a simple, straightforward out-of-memory manager that lives in user space versus kernel space. And that's a pretty significant differentiator um, because the kernel memory space killer, I don't know if I'm properly giving it full tr- characterization, but it's... It sort of has a bad reputation, and it doesn't really get invoked until your system is already wrecked. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before on the show about Facebook's efforts. They actually have their own daemon to do this in user space and added some uh, pressure stall metrics to the kernel to help that work. Early OOM does not take advantage of that, but it has a similar goal. And it's basically, as Facebook acknowledged when they when they released their version, the, the in-kernel solution, it works sometimes, but we've all seen those situations, they've seen the situations where you have a live lock and your system, it is technically still doing work, you know, it's, it's swapping stuff back and forth from disk, but you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, we'll do a live demonstration in a moment, but uh, the way uh, early OOM or OOM uh, works is if both your RAM and swap go below 10% free, then early OOM issues a SIG term to the process with the largest OOM score. So this must be something that the kernel is watching or that this is always watching in the background and it's assigning certain weights to processes? Yeah, and you can also influence that um, both in the kernel version and then early OOM has its own config file. So if you want to change that from 10% to maybe 5% or something like that, you can tune it separately for both RAM and swap. Yeah. Now, this is turned on by default now in Fedora 32, only for the workstation version. Uh, the other spins, you could you could turn it on. It's in the repo, and it's just a uh, essentially a command to turn it on. Um, and uh, there are other options out there. So when Fedora 32 does release, you'll probably hear conversations about, well, why didn't they go with no hang? That's that's early OOM on, on steroids, and it's got all these cool features, or OOM or OM. Or why didn't they use the Facebook-backed one? That's got the Facebook pockets. It's, it's going to be the most well-developed and financed one. So there'll be some debate about why they went with early OOM. But I think the, the simplest way to understand it is it's just very simple, it's stable, it's tiny, it's written in C, which is a good choice for like embedded systems that might have low memory, and it has a small set of dependencies and can work with much older kernels than a lot of these other killers. Yeah, I mean, so Facebook's, the OMD, theirs looks very flexible. You can write plugins that execute your own custom code with hooks into the daemon to really configure how you want you know, precise control over this application. That sounds like it would work really well for an application that you're designing and custom hosting yourself, but for a wide array of desktop uses. I mean, when I've been playing with it, the the config file is just a few lines, and it's basically just 
specifying the command line options. The systemd unit file is very nicely documented and also sort of explains what's going on. So it'll take anyone who needs to mess with it all of, you know, a few minutes to understand exactly what's happening. I think if I was looking towards the future and I'm thinking about like the ultimate Linux workstation OS, you know, it's something that has built-in snapshots and it's something that has one of these early memory killers. Uh, but I wonder if maybe my perfect scenario wouldn't be no hang. Um, not only is it nice and configurable, but it seems like its real goal is to sort of preemptively keep your system responsive. So it sort of kicks in even sooner and a little smarter following a certain rule set. Uh, I think maybe that's the one that's a little more tuned for the desktop as well. Whereas early um is OOM. I just try to cover my bases. Um, is also perfectly, I'd say, usable on the server as well. It's a little brutal. It's a little hard-handed, but it's usable on the server as well. So let's try it. You want to try it? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, well, I figured it'd be fun to actually experiment with it and see what the differences are. So what Wes and I did here to try to keep a low memory situation, and there's a few ways you could play with this, is we have set up identical VMs. He's running Fedora 32, the latest preview or beta, whatever. Uh, is it actually beta yet? It is beta. Oh, oh that's okay. good. Perfect. Thanks, Carl. This is fun because both Ubuntu 20.04 and Fedora 32 are really close, and they both have really cool new features. So I think this is one of the reasons we wanted to, d- to dive into this right now because you could obviously do an entire episode on this. Um, so what we did is we set up identical VMs uh, in KVM and uh, each assigned exactly 8 gigabytes of RAM and um, otherwise pretty basic installs, fully uh, up-to-date on both sides. We have three terminal windows open under Gnome Shell. Uh, I'm using Gnome Shell Classic. Yeah. So are you on Gnome Shell Classic I as well? Am. Okay. That's one thing I didn't think to check. So we're both on Gnome Shell Classic. I have Firefox open with net data running, as does Wes, and three terminals. So what we're going to do, it turns out, <laughs> it is so easy to thrash a Linux box. It is so easy. What we're going to do is we're just going to simply tail slash dev slash zero. And that will fill up memory pretty quickly, depending on how much memory you have. If you have a, if you have a system with like 64 gigs of RAM, it'll, it'll take a little while. If you don't, if you're like me and you only have 8 gigs of RAM, it goes pretty quick. Sure does. So now what we're going to observe when we run this is how these two different systems react. Will either one of them remain usable in a low memory condition? And, and how will they perform? So I'm on 31, Wes is on 32. Uh, do you have your tail dev zero ready, sir? Yeah, let's do it. All right, you ready? Three, two, one, go. Okay, my memory usage is, I'm watching a net data, it's climbing quickly. Oh boy. I also have top running, we both have top going. Oh, and I just maxed out. Wow, that went quick. Are you still running over uh, there? It's just at the top. Okay, it looks like my net data metrics are going a little slow, but I can... My I can... Firefox is totally frozen. Okay, and my thing is killed, so it, it just uh, terminated the tail command. Really? Yep, and I'm seeing here in the early OOM logs that uh, you can configure it so it'll print out all the metrics it sees, and it, it just went, oh, nothing's left. Everything's and frozen. My system's totally locked up. Every every terminal window is locked up. Firefox is locked up. Well, I think I'm just going to get some work done. I mean, while you're, you know. Wow, that's a significant... Yeah, you can use Firefox right now? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, my, uh, What's your my tail command, it, it just all dropped back down. I Mine is unmonitorable now. Even my terminals have frozen. Top is frozen. Everything's frozen. You weren't trying to use that system, were you, Chris? Wow. Is it going to come back? This is a pretty significant difference. Imagine like on a Raspberry Pi where you've only got two or four gigs of RAM, right? Because this is just eight gigs. That's not an uncommon amount of RAM. 
I just did it again, and it you know it, it seems to just sort of replicate just, the same behavior. You just lapped me. <laughs> he just lapped me. Wow, it's totally locked up. Now imagine if I had set this limit, you know, like to like one percent for your or less, then you might get into a similar situation where you could live lock. So you probably have shouldn't to my tune. kernel killer kick in now though. Sometimes it's interesting because we've actually run this test before, and usually the kernel killer does kick in now. We in the in our prep we ran through this and a couple of different takes to make it reproducible. And usually, by now, the... Ah, there it goes! Here we go. Ah, all my terminal process, all three terminal windows were just killed. And now Firefox is starting to come back to life. So that's another difference. In oh, my, it's in, sluggish. In my case, all of my terminals oh stayed open. Oh my god, open. one, one thousand, two... Oh, three seconds for a tab to oh. open. Oh man, it is brutal. It's picking up now. It's starting to pick up. It's, it's acting a little better now. Oh man, it's still sluggish. It's taking a solid second for those tabs to close. Huh. So uh, this for, system is thrashed. For me, it was just the tail command that got killed. So all the rest of my ter- terminals stayed open, and I can still see the logs. Wow, wow, yeah. For for me, it killed all my terminal windows. It didn't just go for the tail command. It just it just was brutal. That's a significant difference. You can actually turn that on in uh, thirty one and thirty as well. It's you, you don't yeah, have to. Already, wait for it's 32. already packaged. You can find it on Debian systems as well. It's. Uh, Really easy I, I to wonder going. if there will be instructions on how to get that working on 2004 and other distros like Manjaro. I mean, it must be simple, right, to get it set up. There's probably an ArchWiki on it. <laughs> that is really significant. You could have probably run that a whole other time, too. You just didn't do it right away, but you probably could have lapped me three times. I think so. And your system, and that's the other thing, is not only does it recover quicker, but it's more responsive when it does recover. You know, there was still some sluggishness just after it got killed as the system was sort of catching up, and it looked like net data maybe lost um, some of its data or at least yeah. dropped its its caches to be nice to the system under pressure. Yeah, look at this. I have a gap in my uh, in my metrics log starting uh, at 12.50 and going to almost 12.53.30. So for... About three minutes there. Yeah, okay, so three I have a, a little minutes. gap, but it's a much smaller gap. I have a three and a half minute gap in my logging. How long was your gap? Do you, do you still have it on your <laughs> chart? It's like 10 seconds. Really? That shows you the difference right there. It's, that's, huh. That's a fun little experiment. I think, I think we are looking at such an awesome Linux desktop future when you look at the speed at which Manjaro is humming along now and how solid Ubuntu has been and now with Wimpy at the lead of the desktop there. Mm, right. Like, you know that's going in good directions. 2004 integrating snapshots Ooh. is fantastic. Fedora 32 integrating not only the latest GNOME Shell improvements but also this cool little trick is going to make it a really solid workstation. All of these are just getting to be such good workstation OSs, which is what I really care about. Well, it's these exact sort of corner cases. You know, as we saw, the the kernel killer does eventually work, and you don't get into this sort of situation every day. It's nice that we've reached the level where this is these are the problems that we can work on now because we have solid foundations underneath and can, you know, add a little more levels of polish. Well, and imagine that scenario on the server for a moment. You know, your server is essentially unresponsive that entire time. That's that's horrible. Yeah, and that's where some of the uh, options that you'll find, too, for either preferring uh, to kill programs or to totally not kill programs might be especially useful if you're like, well, don't ever kill my logging program, but yeah, you can shoot this this application that we have to reboot sometimes. It seems Red Hat developer Chris Murphy was the proponent to include this early um killer in uh, Fedora 32. And um, that's one killer I can get behind. You know, <laughs> I had a I had a whole intro that I was going to do that was such a bad joke I dropped it, but I was I'm going to tell you now that I've you know lay it on me. Today we make nice with a killer. No, not Hans Reiser. <laughs> <laughs> Burn. 
<laughs> Too soon, or are we good? Is that okay now? I, can't, I, can't I think you should. You need to use some uh, <laughs> Riser FS. Yeah, you should. It's probably great. I'm not sure that was funny even five years ago. Damn it, Alex. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Millions of Unraid users are really upset with you about now. Hey, I used RiserFS on a bank check imaging system back in the day because you needed a file system that was really good with small files, lots of small files, and I believe I needed support for extended attributes. So that's how I both got going with RiserFS and XFS. Back in the day, back in the day. So we will have links for all the stuff about the different uh, out-of-memory managers, including ones that um, I think are pretty cool, maybe a little more server-focused. Yeah, I would give NoHang a try if you just want to go try one of these out because it also has um, yes. desktop notifications integrated, which you can also get for early OOM. Um, it looks like you might need another component there. Oh, yeah, that's something we didn't didn't even touch on, but that's something they're looking at is giving you a notification mechanism via your desktop to say, hey, I just had to go kill something in the background. It does It does make a journal entry, and so you could actually just look at the journal for that stuff. But if you're not looking at your journal, which you're probably not, it's nice to get a notification. Good old D-Bus. Well, it's just one of those, like, um, you know, first-class sort of entities where you, you should tell the user what's going on with their system. That's a good point. That's a good point. So if you don't have the desktop application, you have to refer to the logs to see what was killed. And if you're running on a low-memory box and, say, you're trying to, I don't know, edit video and encode video and it's eating up all your RAM, is it by default just going to kill the task that's, that's eating up the most RAM, like it did with the tail command. How does it pick which app or which process to kill whenever you're running these out-of-memory errors? I don't remember the exact particular, so I could be wrong about this, but I believe it works off of um, determining the memory pressure through PSI along with the OOM score that is associated with it. It also takes into account um, priorities. You know, if you set a priority for Mm. a process ID, um, it does take that into account as well. You can, however, configure um, early OOM um, to have different specific um, priorities or like, for example, if you're doing video encoding and you know that's intensive and you don't want it to die, you can have early OOM try very hard to ignore it and try to do something else to relieve the pressure as needed. We went a lot back and forth in the workstation working group about how to configure this and how to deal with this. I know that we had to implement a config in the configuration to work around specifically for Chrome because Chrome uh, does somewhat bad things for how it sets <laughs> right. up its uh, child processes. But yeah, so the the exact details, not sure, but I think that kind of gives you the gist of it. Um, and also one last thing, Chris. Uh, the Chris Murphy, who's actually doing this, who suggested all this and kind of leads the workstation working group, he does not work for Red Hat. That's a different Chris Murphy. Oh, then I emailed the wrong guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you probably did. Oh, well, there you go. It's hard tracking people down online. Sometimes you get it wrong. Well, uh, hopefully Chris Murphy will uh, pass my email along. I was also curious, is this going to be implemented into Fedora Server when it rolls out as well, because I could definitely see this being useful on, like Chris was saying, low-end servers, a droplet with limited resources. I personally wanted to. Um, the problem was that we kind of ran out of time in terms of turning this into like a full all Fedora edition system-wide mm-hmm. change. It's pretty simple to enable, though. It is simple to enable. 
Honestly, my suggestion is um, if you want to see this in Fedora Server, um, drop uh, drop an email or something to the Fedora Server working group to let them know that you're interested in this. And that, like, because the, the main reason it didn't get done was that there was nobody from this server, uh, nobody on the server team particularly expressed any interest because they didn't hear of anybody who wanted it. So, I mean, I obviously believe that it would be useful across all the variants. Wouldn't something maybe like Facebook's OOMD make more sense? Because that's really kind of designed for data centers. That was some of the argument as well. Um, some of the issue with using Facebook's OOMD or OOMD or whatever um, is that uh, it, it is a lot more aggressive than early OOM. Um, and depending on what type of workloads you, you put into a server, that may not be great. Um, that being said, one of the other reasons why we didn't do UMD is because it's in the process of being reworked completely. Um, it, one of the, they're in, working with the systemd folks upstream to re-implement it as a service that's more tightly integrated with systemd service management facilities. Facebook themselves heavily leverage this and their contributors to systemd upstream as well as into the Fedora project. So they're working on making this a more comprehensive solution, better integrated with the service management capabilities within systemd um, and exposing a better interface for desktops and other things to take advantage of it. And if that pans out the way that we all hope it does, we'll probably see within my guess is about a year or so, we will um, look at transitioning from early OOM to that. We're not there yet, but I think it's fascinating that this development, there's these parallel solutions and development to make Linux handle low memory solutions better, or situations, I should say. And the thing that's interesting about them, and this is where my mind was going, is that they're user space, right? They're all user space solutions, but there definitely seems to be a need here. And I think we just demonstrated there's a real benefit on the desktop. Yeah, absolutely. But you could easily see how that would apply to the server, too. Yeah, I mean, the end of, end of it was that we all just gave up waiting for the kernel to solve the problem. So, I mean, if, if you really, really look at it, all of this is just a way to try to make the kernel uh, um behavior happen more deterministically, more repeatably, more reliably, um, and more in a manner that a user expects. And potentially maybe as if you have a user space solution, then maybe the kernel one can be, it's okay that it's so much more conservative and, and heavy-handed because it's kind of a backup. It's a parachute to your glider. Exactly. Maybe. We'll see. I could say, and that would be, and the thing that's nice about the user space one Although it's so Linux to have multiple solutions to do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure other operating systems, they just have one and they just implement it. At the same time, it's clear that there's there's nice uses for it. Like OOMD or OOMD from Facebook is great for the server, but Nohang looks like it's going to be a lot better for the desktop. And there are different use cases there. And so it's so perfectly Linux that there are multiple ones, but we'll get to some common ground. There'll probably be some some easy way to swap these all out too, right? Well, yeah, I mean, they're just... It's just a single binary right. oftentimes that runs, so just stop the service, start yeah. the service of the new one. It's a user space thing. Exactly. It's a very, very powerful user space thing, but yeah, I think it's fascinating. Um, and I might always now run a desktop with one, I think. I think that's my takeaway from this. a little this. bit of a paradigm shift in that sense, is why why not? Why not? I mean, would you implement it on your, say, your if you were to go back into your Neon installer? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, you might too. need to do a little tuning, per perhaps, if you have some applications that are memory hogs and end up getting killed, but that's right. easy to do. Like, it probably might not make as much sense on the OBS machine. And we also don't see those problems there, so it probably does make more sense, too, right, for a machine where you've got perhaps a little more dynamic workload, where you do see large changes in how much RAM is used, like a web browser. Yeah, and spe specifically my laptop. Yeah. Hmm. 
with three electron apps open and <laughs> at least <laughs> yeah, it's on a good day. So there is one other case where you might want to think about for using uh, early OOM or any other um, user space um, out of memory management solution. It's if you know that you're doing a workload which dynamically spawns lots of threads uh, and those threads can at any given time spike and use lots of memory and you don't really have a good way of uh, immediately dealing with that or otherwise controlling it within the application itself. So, for example, if you are dynamically letting video encoders just run wild on your computer, uh, that's probably an avenue where you, if you cannot do any control in the application itself, which thankfully most of them let you, um, that is something where early OOM would benefit. But another is if you're compiling code, killing threads for out-of-control compilations doesn't necessarily bring down the whole compilation process. In most cases, it causes it to reschedule them or do something different. So, you know, it it, it, it depends. But, like, it, be, when you consider these workloads, you also have to consider, you know, what what is the modeling for how, the, how these processes and, mem- and how the memory allocation is going to go. Right, and what are the consequences for things getting killed in terms of how that work can continue? <laughs> for sure. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that is the, that is the that is definitely the the other side to this double edged sword. I think that's what makes it so interesting to see it as a new default too. Is you know sort of the Fedora workstation team saying this works well enough that let's push it out. Yeah, and I think you'll see other distributions pick it up, especially the ones that want to be seen as performance mm-hmm. focused. Well, I could see this. Uh, you know, the out of memory killer along with immutable systems, you know, all kind of coming together under one umbrella to maybe form the next, you know, the next season of, of Linux distros and stuff, you know, like what Silver Blue is doing now and being able to stack Oom right on top of that would be, you know, a nice little. All running on Wayland backed by Flatpak or uh, App Images or Snaps. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, it's in happening. The, in the IRC, XMN has a point about mobile devices. And yeah, I kind of want this for Android already. Funny you should mention all of that. So Silverblue, the goal with this is like combined with low memory monitor and early oom, I I believe that in the very near future, Silverblue will also have this functionality uh, active and and more tightly integrated. And because of some of the stuff that's going on on the Flatpak side, it can be slightly more intelligent than your average application about handling memory pressure situations. Oh, and as far as Android goes, they already do this. That's really one of the reasons why uh, there's been a lot of impetus towards trying to fix this for desktop Linux is because every other platform, including the Android one, already has something um, set up. Well, that's that's the advantage to a unified, focused, sort of sprint-based, like, we're going to focus on this and this and this. And Yeah, the Mac does similar things. Windows does similar things. Minimech, though, had a question that I bet is on the mind of a lot of listeners, so I wanted to let you jump in. Thank you. Uh, my question was, how is Swap involved in all this? I mean, we're talking about ROM now, but we all have a little small per Swap partition. Yeah, and I think there was some thought in the design of uh, this when it comes to Swap is it looks at your RAM and your Swap, and if they're less than 10% free or if they're around that range, that's when it'll generally kick in. But one, I think, Wes, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the tunables is you can say start sooner than 10% swap because if I'm hit, if I'm using that much swap, then my system is already thrashing way more than I would like it to be. Yep. Yeah, you can tune both of those separately. Yeah. So you could go in there and say, you know what, once I'm at 50% swap, start getting crazy. Now, I don't, that would probably be too much, but by default, it's it once, once your free swap goes below 10%, that's when it starts kicking in for both your swap and your RAM by default. And part of the reason for setting that way is that there are some people who are 
um, either putting anemic or no swap at all. And so we need to cover those grounds as well. And people who have anemic swap, this can cause interesting side effects. So that's why we consider both free RAM and swap together to make sure that we don't, you know, kick in unnecessarily aggressively. Yeah, this is an example where sometimes just blasting defaults and not letting the user change it has some advantages because then you know what their configuration is for things like swap. You know it's exactly the amount of RAM or maybe the distribution policy is 20% of the amount of RAM or something. You just always know what that number is. But this is a power user workstation OS and we can tweak those things, thankfully. Well, that's what I was just thinking because with Android, I'm not very satisfied with the version there because I... It seems I have more stalls on Android than I have on my Linux laptop. <laughs> yeah, so I sure. want more knobs. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, very good point. And I think it's I think it's going to be there for you, Wes. I think you will be able to. Like I say, I mean, this is this changes everything for me going forward. I will forever going forward on my Linux boxes. I mean, I'm going to go right start after the show installing it. And now it's going to be one of the things, like along with tweaking my fonts and installing <laughs> themes, Wes, and getting extensions, I'll be ter- installing an early memory out of memory killer because that's how I roll. Um, that's pretty cool. And I'm glad to see it getting turned on. Now we'll see where it goes from here. All right, now how about a couple of picks? Not just one, but two picks. Yes, please. The first one, new shell. It's a new type of shell. Okay. All right, I'm going to admit it. I didn't put this one in, so I hadn't really looked at this. This looks pretty great. You'll be pretty pleased to hear that it's written in Rust, so... What, what? What was that, Wes? Yeah, that's right. It's written in Rust. Oh, my gosh! Yes! Yes! Yes, it is hammer time. Very good. It's got all kinds of smart support for different formats and natively understands things like XML, JSON, INI files, other configuration files. And as you will see if you visit their website, when you run just the average old ls command, instead of getting the normal sort of pure text ls output, you get a lovely little table and New Shell has a bunch of built-ins to help you sort with that. So instead of having to use flags to LS oh. to configure, like, I only want to see things that are this new or whatever, you oh, just sort of pipe nice. it and say, well, when the date is after this. Oh, Wes, this is really cool. Oh, I love what it does with PS and LS. Oh, my gosh. that Oh, that's so nice. So it's basically making curses tables, just a, a UI to just outline the data easier. Well, but you can also interact with that data. So you can filter on the different things. You can load a JSON uh, document into the exact same table and use all the same tools to interact with it and pipe it back out again to traditional command line programs. It's um, definitely, as they admit, inspired by things like PowerShell, right, that have Mm -hmm. these sort of rich objects behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like um, a little subdomain that you get with this rich capability in this new shell while still having access to a somewhat traditional command line experience to go do all the rest of the programs that might not be supported by, you know, with the additional superpowers. Stay a while and listen. And now one more. And you know this one's a hot market one because it's just got a launchpad page. Does it not have a homepage? What's the matter with <laughs> it doesn't. this thing? I wasn't able to find one. There might be one out there, but I wasn't able to find it. All right, so tell me about Timekeeper next. So Timekeeper, uh, Time KPR, uh, which it was originally known as, and then they changed the name a few times, and now it's Timekeeper Next, um, essentially allows you, you know, everyone's at home right now, and their kids are using their computers, and likely if you're listening to this show, your kid is using a Linux-based computer. Um, you can install Timekeeper uh, through a PPA currently. Uh, it's also in the Arch repos. But you can install Timekeeper to keep track of the time used on these desktop environments on the computer for your 
any other user on the system. So say your kids log in and you want to allow them to log in uh, and use the machine through these certain hours. Um, or if you want to maybe allow them to use the machine, they can't use it past midnight until 8 a.m. in the morning. And then you only want them to have three hours of computer access for the day. You can set all this up per on a per user basis. Um, so it's a nice little way to kind of, you know, keep your kids off of the computer a little bit while you're, uh, while you're stuck at home. Yeah. Or yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. Honestly, I have a hard time just in the last couple of days. Uh, well, really yesterday and today I'm trying to get myself to move more because I, I used to have this mindset that I would just sit down and marathon a day and just work, 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 work all day long. Yeah, it doesn't work. Oh my God. I like, I get sore all over in places I didn't know you would get sore. <laughs> I serious. Like it's bad. So the sitting sore. Yeah. Well, and it's really, it's in my shoulders and my elbows and in my wrists. It's just getting, I'm getting like RSI essentially. So I think of what it is. And so I got to move around more. And so something like that to help me just practice that is, is always good. So uh, that's timekeeper next. Yeah, I think for me, I would be tempted just to go in and flip the switch and turn it off, though. Yeah, I know. If I was administrating it myself, like it would have to be something like I wasn't able to get in and turn off <laughs> myself. <laughs> like I don't, I don't use like any of the digital well-being stuff on my on my phone. Here's right. the thing: you, you just change your root password when you're drunk. Get it all configured. And then- <laughs> that is the best idea I've ever heard. <laughs> that's, a, that's a West Payne pro tip, right yeah, there. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yes, it is hammer time. <laughs> uh, hey, does anybody know if uh, you can run OpenSense on ARM hardware like the Pine 64? Because I think that'd make a. I was just thinking about our firewall segment. They did make a PFSense uh, box that was ARM based. From my understanding, it wasn't super great. It was kind of limited on the throughput side. Uh, like you couldn't saturate the gigabit connections. But. Yes, from my understanding, there is already ARM hardware out there running PFSense and OpenSense. I could sniff around. We'll see. Alex says he can do he can do a low power cheap setup, so I'm 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 waiting to see. But I'm just trying to yeah, hundred bucks, hundred bucks a used. I'm going to write a blog post before the next self hosted episode. Hundred bucks, and you'll build an x86 system that that draws about fifteen watts. Okay. All right. Okay. You got me with that. Cause I was going to say my, my entire setup right now draws like 50 Watts and I am so stinking <laughs> proud of that. That includes router, Wi-Fi and switch and now four pies. So it might be actually, I haven't actually checked it since I added the fourth pie. So, <laughs> but I'm going to shut down one of them. So it won't oh. matter. Yeah, I am. So, you know, who else is running a uh, super inexpensive and low powered PF sense box is our buddy Tyler, uh, Condulo. He runs a, I think it's a wise um, thin client. Oh, yeah. As a PFSense box. Yeah. Wow, that's wild. I remember those old boxes. Um, All right. Well, I just have a quick disclaimer, really quick, but I just want to get it out there. Uh, Alex and I have decided together that we're going to take things to the next level in our self-hosted relationship, and we have launched a Discord server. (laughs) I think you need the hallelujah. Now, okay. A beautiful baby <laughs> server. Now listen, if you don't use Discord already, don't sign up on our account. We're not trying to convert anyone to use Discord. We're making a community there for people that use it. Selfhoster.show slash Discord. I want to get the word out there because I know some of you already have Discord accounts and you want to use it. 
And something that Alex and I have talked about on the show is trying to strike these balances from time to time. We obviously lean towards hosting it yourself, and we're very aware of ways we could do that from IRC to Matrix. But Discord is where the community is. And so for the people that are there, we have created a Discord server. And uh, Alex, do you have any other like uh, thoughts you want to add to that? Because I know for some people, it's just like crazy that the self-hosted show is using Discord. I know we're we're a pair of heathens, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> we knew that was coming though. I know, Within twenty I know. minutes of launching it, it just boils down to pragmatism in the end. I've written a blog post to try and outline some of our thoughts in a bit more detail as yeah. to how we came to that decision. So blog.ktz.me is the first post on there at the moment, and uh, yeah, there'll be a link in the show notes. It's a truly contentious issue. It's why we're still on IRC for this show, even though I think we'd probably have maybe a thousand people in there if we were on Discord. Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting because it's just really, it's the, it's the audience. I launched a Discord server for Unfilter recently. It was like two weeks ago. It, it took until this weekend, like two days ago, somebody said, Hey, how come we're doing this on Discord? But when we launched it for self-hosted, it was within 20 minutes of launching it that somebody said, <laughs> what? All about those expectations. Yeah. There. So, and, and we're totally aware of that. And that's something we'll address in self-hosted if you check out self-hosted. And also, if you go through the, if you start, and go through our early episodes, like we had uh, one with Wendell very early on, we really kind of get into our rationale there about when it's absolutely vital to self-host versus when you can make a compromise. And I think that's important even just for Linux users. It's not just a self-hosting thing. It's also a software thing. Linux isn't always the right solution. <gasps> Sometimes. No, it's true. And <clears throat> I think when when you... When you, when you judge someone for using Windows or for Mac OS... In a way, what you're actually doing is you're judging them for choosing something that you did not choose. You're sort of projecting a moral value onto them. And then you're judging them for that projection of a moral value that they never subscribed to. And it's a really, it's a complicated thing to judge people for what they use because you're, you're essentially shaming them in your head or publicly for choosing something you didn't choose. And that is a slippery slope. Well, you know, it's, it's rare that you actually understand the complete context of all of those choices that hmm. other people are making. Yeah, very typical because it's very hard to, you know. You may not understand them for your own choices. Yeah, sometimes. So I, I agree. I think it's, it's sometimes a very, very likely that Linux is going to do a great job, but it's not always the right tool. And we shouldn't judge people for not using it. I happen to like it a lot, but it's fine if you don't, really. I, I stumbled into a, a conversation thread on YouTube and on Reddit um, over the weekend where somebody was being outed for, for running Windows, who, who's supposed to be like a Linux developer. Um, and they were, using, they were outed for using Windows 10. And I, I just felt like it was, like it's, it's sort of old now. It's like we kind of moved past all that. It seems like it's one of those things that people like to just hang on. And, and I get being a purist, but in that same vein, I think it's always just right to use the, the tool that's, that's good for the job, that's perfect for the job, you know? And when a lot of us came to this, I mean, you know, before you learned about licenses and, and all of these things, or maybe you came into computers before, you know, the open source and free software movements, computers are tools to do things, and we're excited about playing with them and using them. And yes, I think for a lot of us, once you discover open source and free software, you're like, okay, this makes sense, this is how we should try, try to be doing things for computers, it's just a natural fit. But there's still a whole bunch of tools out there that are very useful in a huge range of fields, and they're still great. Yeah, well said. Um, I, it's funny because while we look at things like Fedora 32 and we talk about Ubuntu 20.04, it, it doesn't seem like 
I have this view, but I truly do see this as sort of a post-distro show. Like, it's all great. It's all good. And it's just different kinds of good for different use cases. Right. Like, this show can get into Mint. I can put myself in that headspace, and I can appreciate things like time shift and the way the updates are labeled out. Or I can get myself in the headspace of even we tried out Regolith recently. I was like, actually kind of like this. I get it. And it's because when you step back and you remove that sort of like, well, it should be like this kind of thing, and you just roll with kind of the awesome software that it is, it it sort of doesn't really make sense to have these different camps and tribes in different distros because they're all using the same upstream stuff. They're all struggling with the same problems. And, and often, in almost, not all, but in a lot of cases, maybe the majority of cases, behind the scenes, the developers chat with each other. They work on multiple projects. You know, it's not uncommon for them to work on several. Especially like, in the open source world, right, where there's all these shared fundamentals. Neil, what, what are the different distributions you contribute to on a regular basis? Oh boy, uh, let's see. Uh, primarily, I'm involved in Fedora and OpenSUSE, but I also work in Magia, OpenMandriva, um, a little tiny sliver in Debian. I've got a little bit more than a sliver in Ubuntu. Um, I used to work on a couple of other uh, distributions like uh, uh, Unity and a few other, Unity Linux and a couple oh, of others. Man. I would. I have done a little bit in Alpine, some in Void. Um, there was a f- little bit of time where I was working with the Exervo people. But Neil, some of those are competitors with Fedora. You madman! <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to break your heart, Chris. But like for the most part, all of us talk to each other and work with each other fairly often. Um, some more than others. There are some that like to live on their little islands. But, you know, in general, um, at least within the larger distro communities, uh, to a great extent, like we do talk to each other and work with each other on common right. problems. It's it's common software. And that's why the, the tribalism between the distros, I think, is sort of silly. And that's why I call this a post-distro show in that sense. And I, I, I apply that same logic to judging people for other tools that they use. I just don't think it really makes a lot of sense. I find a certain... Uh, I do find a certain uh, important moral value in free software, but I don't need to have somebody else subscribe to that same moral value. And just like I, I, I happen to like the Linux flavors I like, but there are so there's such a range and variety of different distros and Linux users that it's fine. Yeah, we just celebrate that. We're all using the same stuff. What is the purpose of this show of JB in general of what we're doing here? It's to further the open source agenda, isn't it? Absolutely. Free software rules the world. Yeah, and and to help others find it and be part of a community. And sometimes, uh, to quote the orange one in the chat, sometimes it's about using the best tool rather than the right tool. Yeah, and I think Linux is, is the right tool for a lot of jobs, and that's what we talk about here. And for a lot of us, it can be it's it's sufficient that it's all you need. Um, I had a great chat with Neil about Pagu Pagu. Pegu? Pegger. Pegger. A GitLab alternative. <laughs> uh, we just dedicated an extras to that that came out this morning. It's 14 minutes long, so it's just a quick one. Extras.show slash 69. If you are curious about a self-hosted GitLab alternative that few projects are involved with these days, some less than before, and then, of course, the free software is rolling out its GitLab solution that will be, or its GitLab-like solution that will be based on Pagu? Prager? Pagger. Pagger. Troll. <laughs> oh, am I trolling again? Uh, sometimes I do that. All right. Well, go find more of my work at chrislast.com. Go find more of Wes at Wes Payne. And, of course, at techsnap.systems. Uh, what else should we plug? At Cheese Bacon? Is that your handle, Cheese? Yeah, that's, me on, that's me on the Twitter. Yeah. At Cheese Bacon. There you go. 
And of course, you can find us in the Telegram as well. We'd love to have you join us live on Tuesday. Get that converted at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And you can always jump in that IRC. It's irc.geekshed.net, pound Jupiter Broadcasting. You don't want us to switch to Discord. Use the IRC. It's really easy. Just go to jblive.tv to get the stream and IRC embedded right there. Boom! See you next Tuesday! Program. All right, jpytitles.com. Cobalt! Is the bot working? The bot Let's live? check. I rebooted it <laughs> earlier. You snuck in there and rebooted it before we started. Good thinking. Yeah. You know, you just got to reboot the bot. You know what we need is a Safety bot command first. that reboots itself. Metabot. Yeah, a, a, a master bot. We need to start porting jbot to Discord right away. <laughs> right? It's not a horrible idea, actually. Ideally, though, in, in the same crippled format. We don't want to improve it too much. We just want <laughs> right. to... <laughs> Right, absolutely. <laughs> Something you have to kill from time to time. Yeah. you know, It's troublesome personality. What I think is interesting, too, is that, you know, this talk about Discord and tools and so on and so forth. We all know that Discord's using open source technologies under the hood. Oh, yeah. Like, come They're on. They're written in Elixir. Yeah, well, and you know, their servers are all in the back end. I know it's, it's that's so true for so many services. It's a tricky line there. So first, I actually would have been real interested if you guys had decided to do like a JB Network uh, matrix to replace Geek Shed. Um, but one thing I, 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 know. I, yeah, I mean, I think it'd be what way more successful than the IRC server is. Um, but when it comes to things like discord and Slack and all of those, I, I like, they're all proprietary solutions and I'm kind of stuck having to use them for various reasons and like, whatever, like I, I grit my teeth and deal with it. But the thing that annoys me more is the fact that they're so bad at contributing back to the community. Um, like they build lots of stuff. They clearly do. They build really innovative things, but they don't in, in to some degree share the wealth back to the community to help build bigger and better solutions. And that's, that's the part that I get more annoyed about more than anything else. Hmm. Hmm. That's what I say to that. That doesn't sound good. Until those engineers move on to another job with the skills they picked up at discord and build something else better. Maybe this time it will be open. Who knows? Possibly. Possibly. That's what I always hope for. Well, I certainly picked up most of my skills, you know, working on software that will never see the light of day publicly uh, for, for companies that are obviously paying me money to do so. And here I am contributing, you know, so it does happen. Just maybe not quite in the ways we hope. I would say you probably also picked up a lot of hardware skills when you worked at the Apple store and now you're building home assistant <laughs> right. controlled devices. Yes. So, you know, we all kind of come full circle. Alex, tell me about your the uh, printing factory you've turned into over there. Oh, my God. I'm so bored of 3D printing. Oh, I've printed nearly 300 <laughs> face shields for medical workers over the last seven days. That's Ooh, awesome. Very nice. That's great, though. Uh, about $500 in donations and uh, lots and lots of folks in local nursing homes and hospitals and stuff. Very, very grateful. So oh, I'll be so happy when the big molds come online and I can stop. But for now, I think it's a valuable public service. Do people come by and pick them up or do you have to deliver them? Yep. All hours of the day, I have uh, given out batches of 20 or 30 at a time. 
Um, they cost about 50 cents to make each and uh, people generally seem to be donating about a buck each to cover, you know, filament costs and electric and oh, time and that sort of stuff. So it's been really great to see the community pull together. Well, that is really neat. I'll drop the link to uh, the blog post you wrote there, Alex. I jumped on it too and had been printing them and was lucky enough that the school donated their filament from their 3D printer that's on the Fritz and uh, also donated a ton of transparency sheets for the actual face shield part. So, um, but if anyone out there is interested, I'd know, Neil, you have a 3D printer. Uh, jump on it. You know what? You guys just earned a taco. Good job. Yes.